old school track or old school coaching, we used to talk about don't spill the teacup, meaning pelvic tilt. Well, I've kind of dropped that concept because it's a two-dimensional XY sort of yeah. image. Okay. I talk about a bowl of jello. I describe the pelvis as a bowl of jello. And you know how jello tends to jiggle? How calmly non-vibrational, how how steady state can I bring that bowl of jello to the moment? That was Dave Karen, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If there's one thing that has completely changed my approach to supplementation, it's been finding performance herbalism. Herbalism is different than your typical supplements, particularly because herbalism works by harnessing the power of nature. It involves using tried and tested, high-grade, well-sourced herbal compounds to make a difference in your energy, strength, boost your hormonal system, and improve your overall vitality. That's what today's sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs, can bring to you. Whether it's through Shiliajit resin, which has been highly recommended by many coaches for improved strength, mushroom tinctures for immune support, combination packages such as the Phoenix formula, which is one of my favorites, Lost Empire Herbs has the supplements that will help you in achieving your performance training goals. If you want to check out some of my favorite herbs, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly and use the code JOEL15 at checkout. That's J-O-E-L-1-5 at checkout for 15% off. Lost Empire Herbs is a great company, and I hope you get a chance to check them out. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited to welcome back to the show after over a 300-episode hiatus. He was on episode 58, so one of the classic episodes of the show. Uh, to welcome back David Karen. Dave is the USA Track and Field Chair of Men's Development and also the Chair of Men's and Women's High Jump. He's had a successful NCAA coaching career in track and field and has coached the still-standing NCAA D3 championship record in women's high jump. Curvilinear sprinting is very common in sport movement and activity, and rotation is present in every sport movement. The sport or the event of high jump in track and field has a lot to teach us on these lines of curvilinear running and rotation because those pieces are so baked into success in that event. And Dave will be speaking on these topics, uh, how to run a curve well, uh, elements of curvilinear running and sprinting, rotation in sport, uh, this and much more on the show today. Dave is a brilliant coach and I enjoyed speaking with him. Let's get to episode 389 here of the podcast. Dave, good to have you back on the show, man. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, I know we talked a lot about plyometrics and things last time. In terms of rotation and one of the track events that's a pinnacle of rotational ability is high jump, uh, what would you say some things or some of the primary things that high jumping uh, can teach the rest of the athletic world? Like, what are what are some of those things? Well, um, I told you before we started today that I'm working with a marketless capture company. Um, people in our in the sporting world are aware that everybody and his brother now is rolling out a platform to do marketless capture, and some of the uh, you know elite groups in the world are associating with various products. Um, in my case, what I'm trying to get is markerless capture of curvilinear running. Well, if you think about a fixed camera location and the perspective and filming the athletes, and because you're not marking the joints, the ability to analyze that and kick back some valuable, you know, KPIs and data, when you put the athlete on a curve, that becomes more challenging. So, mm-hmm. uh, I think that it's important and, um, in the sense that uh, a company doing that isn't going to make a lot of money on a high jump, you know, yeah. evaluation. But how about if I can shave a tenth of a second when you're running from home plate to second base? Mm-hmm. You know, there are other examples of curvilinear running other than high jump. But here's the beauty: most of the science, if you think about the peer-reviewed stuff you see on the web, it's all talking about curvilinear. But all the research is based on radial or semicircular runs. Um, I tell people jokingly, where's the drunk look for his missing car keys under the street light, because that's the easiest place to look. doesn't mean they're there, but it's the easiest place to look. So in the science world, to analyze something that's a constant, a radial line, it is curve running, but it's not that free form curvilinear running. So getting back to markerless capture, the largest marketplace for 
mom and dad's filming or high school coaches filming or whoever is going to use the product, those athletes are football players, soccer players, basketball players, and that's a free-form curvilinear run that's not repetitive. So we need to break off from radial running to get to free-form curvilinear. I suggest that high jump is the perfect transition point because high jump isn't radial, but it is repetitive. So the pattern is always the same. There might be slight variations, you know, two, three inches, one or 2% each curve run of a high jump, but it's non-radial and that's the transition point to get to free form curvilinear analysis. So, you know, I, it's a long way to go. We're not there yet, but that's where we're trying to get to. So when I talk about high jump and the nature of high jump, the idea being that in sport, um, for instance, uh, I'm working with a, uh, a premier league team's sports science group, and they put out an article. And again, it was talking about curvilinear running, but all the references were radial. I said on a soccer pitch, no athlete runs a pure radial line from point A to point B. The only reason they're running a curve in the first place is because they can't get there directly. The shortest distance is a straight line. So if they're running a curve, it's because there's some sort of impediment, athlete, defender, whatever. But that curve tends to round itself off and tighten because they want to get to the ball or to, to the place on the field sooner rather than later. So now that gets into angular momentum and the tightening of the curve run and the mechanics involved in curvilinear running are different than the mechanics in running a radial line. If you think about it, we'll go back to the high jump. For example, when the athlete starts their approach, they have a 90 degree relationship to the bar. They have an attack angle at plant of plus or minus 30 degrees. So you have to reduce 60 degrees of angle. Okay. If you're running a five step curve and high jump, 60 degrees would be 12 degrees of reduction every step to get you down to the plant. But that's not what happens. And all the high jumps, hundreds of high jumps that have been analyzed, the best practitioners of a high jump approach use what I call progressive reduction. The first step mm. off the straight yeah. approach turns a little bit. The second step turns a little more and they bite off more of the sandwich. So the first step may only turn inward two degrees, where the last step is. 25 degrees or more well what you're getting is that angular momentum because you're tightening the radius uh the analogy would be the figure skater at the big finish when they start spinning yeah. and they've extend their arms and as they draw into the center line of the long axis of the body they accelerate so it's not linear acceleration in the traditional sense yet you are increasing velocity of the plant by leaning on angular momentum so again whether it's running the bases whether it's you know, the NBA player trying to turn the corner, mm. whether it's the guy on the soccer pitch or the, or the receiver running the pattern, what are the mechanics that get to the results? And so I think high jump curve is the transition point between linear running yeah. to radial mm. running to freeform curvilinear. Cool. I'm glad you cleared that up there in the last couple of minutes because that was something I uh, instantly I was going to ask you, well, what's the difference between just running a circle basically and what you'd said um, like radial versus angular was those the two that you had yeah said? well think about it when you're running a, a radius like if you're running on an indoor 200 meter track each step you turn consistently yes to the same. yes exactly Stride length is approximately the same all these are constant but that's not the case like i said in a free form or if all of a sudden a, an obstruction presents itself like you're a receiver running across the middle and all of a sudden, there's the back judge. You've got to get yeah. around him. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden, in the moment, now, how do you do that? And so if you look at, you know, motor motor geniuses, like, say, a Barry Sanders, uh, everybody looks at, wow, he avoided that guy, and he stops and goes. His change of direction skills are amazing. But what they miss is the nature of the foot placements to the axes of the shoulder and the hip, where the long axis, axis of the foot tends to stay perpendicular to the, the hip and shoulder axes where they're not twisting and turning and pivoting. So that gets into a terminology thing where you don't turn to run a curve. Yeah. You, re you redirect your center of mass. And in redirecting the center of mass, you then reorient the torso to the new path. Yeah. Where um, 
you watch an NBA game, it's it's a classic. I guarantee you, you'll see it tonight if you turn it on. Yeah. Watch an NBA game and a guy drives down the lane and slips and falls. The first thing you do is stand up, point to the baseline to some poor slob making minimum wage to come out and mop up the wet spot. But there is no wet spot. It's the nature of how their feet were contacting the court and where they were in relation to the center of mass, the orientation of long axis of the foot compared against the torso, that if they didn't establish friction force, they're not in a stable position and they go down. So um, I talk, again, high jump, but but general sport specific. You can't run a curve or turn a corner in less than three steps. And the more steps, the better. But it's that abrupt right angle that gets them every time. Yeah. So again, like I said, you watch watch NBA players, the, the, the propensity of them falling down has never been higher in my life. They're constantly taking a dive on the floor. And again, if they're not slipping, look at the foot. Look at how they're trying to pivot. And because they're trying to turn abruptly in one step, they have to go into plantar flexion because if the foot is down, the foot doesn't turn as well if the heel is in the floor. And now you know as a high ex-high jumper with spikes in the back of a high jump shoe, that foot will not turn once the spikes engage. So the reason high jumpers tend to plantar flex is they've taken those back four spikes of the heel off the surface. Mm-hmm. Now they can torque on that ankle, but now here's the injury history. We're twisting on the ankle. We're twisting on the knee. We're actually rotating at the femoral notch. So people that are listening at home, here's a good exercise. You get your feet on the floor, put one hand on either side of a knee such that your thigh will not roll over. Now try to turn your ankle inward or outward. You get about 10 degrees range of motion at the ankle before the entire leg starts to rotate. Hmm. And that's kind of that's kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah. No, I, there's a lot of things you said that really, like, actually just kind of drew three shapes. I've gotten this habit of drawing things i found my notepad instead of writing uh but it's like i have three images one is like a 90 degree angle another is a straight curvilinear run and i think people are very familiar with those training concepts hey let's change uh, let's train change the direction or maybe a 180 and a lot of times with the 90 degree cut or the 180 degree cut there's very um like like cut and dry instructions i guess you could say um mm-hmm. explicit versus implicit i think nick winkleman has talked about that distinction like just very put your foot here do this um and curvilinear running though like or i should say angular angular running i'm trying to think radial running radial running where no there's a steady uh like two degrees every foot you know something like that i think that also honestly i don't know how much coaching people would have in that they just say just do it and i don't even know how much coaching is needed for something like that outside of typical running you know elements but it's like What's interesting is what you as you were talking, you think about if people have been around the track and field world, just because someone can run a 200 meters does not mean that they can run a curve while in high jump. In fact, everyone can run the curve in 200 meters. <laughs> so what makes high jump, running a high jump curve special? And as you were talking, it, it really struck me that, like you had said, so much of the curvilinear runs and things that happen in team sport. I'm sure there are radial runs occasionally, but I imagine a lot of those runs are not pure, like like radial. There is, um, I think of it like uh, the Fibonacci equation is what popped in my head, where it's like the that's conch exactly shell. Exactly what it is. Yes, it's the conch but shell. But that ties into angular momentum because the progressive increase in the Fibonacci mm, number. Acceleration. Angles of, of redirection, you've got an acceleration in the middle. It's a spiral effect where you're speeding up. Yes, yeah, because if it's, if it's, a, if it's a straight two degrees like a, like a track curve or like you know you laid out the ropes that are that are there's no um emphasis there's no it's all two degrees two degrees two degrees every turn there is initial acceleration going into that turn and, and you know and steady it's steady and constant but yeah it's that it's like um there was a swim coach who had mentioned this to me a long time ago it's interesting thinking about the things that i learned in swimming and this um uh, who is one of the most the this guy was a motor learning genius and just um saw the world almost in sculptures like he was a sculptor before he was like a swim coach or something and spent a lot of time on the farm watching animals when he was younger and he had said swimming really and i think all sports do this but swimming is a pure example of things that really work in surges like things that really have to lag and things that surge ahead and i'm like well all things all events all movement works in surges and it is kind of funny because 
that's to me, Tyler Yerby recently mentioned um, the emergence in the motor learning group of aliveness. And to me, like a ro- you know, if we're robots, it is 90, 180, coaching instructions, 222, two, two, you know, where there's not really this like dynamic surging change. Whereas running a curve, an arc that changes and tightens, that's more like the Fibonacci. That's something that's alive. And I even think something, an example that more people probably could, you know, I'd say whatever percentage of people listening who have high jumped or been around high jump is probably not much. I would say there's probably more who have maybe tried to dunk a basketball. It's like, all right, when you go to dunk a basketball, do you run in a straight line to the hoop? No. <laughs> you know, you run kind of an arc, you know, like mm-hmm. a little bit of an arc. And chances are, especially if you run and jump off two feet, that arc is really going to tighten right at the end because you're throwing extra acceleration into it. And I also think about like why uh, of all <laughs> of all the many reasons, there's a lot of them, why is pickup basketball such an amazing warm-up for jumping or whatever you're going to do, yeah. right? Like how many, yes, curve runs, but how many angle changes that are fast and tight like a figure skater because to get, you know, to go around somebody or anything you're going to do, there's going to be a lot of that, but now it's in a game, which is amazing. And I, you know, it's funny. I, I never thought about that distinction before, but I feel like it makes intuitive sense to me. I'm like, oh yeah. So there's cool. the, we talked earlier, we'll get to it probably later that I want to get somewhere first, but that's that 2d, 3d relationship that mm-hmm. I talked about a moment ago, but you said a lot of important things I want to build on. Okay. First off is put, you've got a piece of paper there, put three dots down. Okay. In the pattern of what you would describe as a curve, right? Then use two lines and connect the dots. Is it a curve or is it a triangle? Oh, yeah, triangle. Right? Okay. Now, same exercise, use four dots. Should I put the... I'm trying to figure... Well, I'll just put a dot. <laughs> it can, it, 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 it's, it's not a, a funky. It's a funky-looking curve, but it's, it's coming together. We're not going to hang it in the, in the art museum. But with four dots now, it starts to break that angle a little bit. Mm-hmm. You might get more of a mesa sort of shape. But here's the problem with four dots. Show me curve apex on your four dot curve. It's between the second and third dot. You're not yeah. in contact with the ground, right? Yeah. So that's where in high jump specifically, five steps is the minimum for a curve. Otherwise, you're not running a curve. What's the, I forget the uh, Alice in Wonderland author quote where when you don't know where you're going, any route will get you there. Well, you can run from point A to point B any way you want. But what kind of velocity is required when you get there and what rotations do you need other than the linear path? Yeah. So you talk about why run a curve or what high jump relates to other events or the high jumper versus the NBA dunker, those sorts of things. We know, for instance, and this will lead into another thing. We, I know from science, from scientific review that elite high jumper 240 plus has got to be going at least eight meters a second at plant. Well, I also know that in the first five steps of the run, they never get more than 90% of that speed. So where did the other 10% come from? It's got to be in the curve. If you tell the average kid or the average coach, they say, you got to speed up in the curve. Well, the kid stands upright and goes to linear sprint mechanics to accelerate. Hmm. But then they've lost the lean. They've lost centripetal. They've lost the benefits of running the curve. Yeah. So if you run the curve correctly, that's where you get that last 10%. Yeah. While bringing the requisite rotations from from backward lean to forward lean, lateral lean to vertical, you create bar rotation and rotation back to the bar, and it gives you the more efficient bar clearance. So it's again the why are we running a curve in the first place? And it's advantageous all the way back to the late Dick Fosbury. The reason being, if you in fact pull up a video of Dick at Mexico City. His run is effortless. Mm-hmm. His float over the bar is effortless because it's in such a mechanically advantaged position and positions that it was easier, frankly. And it's funny because Bernie Wagner was his coach at Oregon State back in the 60s. And he's quoted, I can pull him up. There's magazine or newspaper articles. Bernie says, Dick wasn't one of the better athletes on the mm. college track team. He wasn't a great athlete, but he had he went on to an engineering career. Yeah. He had the mental ability Mm. to see efficiencies and how to apply them. And so my argument now becomes Dick is a college senior graduated and then went to Mexico city in 68 and jumped 224. You'd give a full ride to a kid out of high school going into the NCA for 224. It's been over 50 years. 
we're not doing any better than Dick did. If anything, I think we're kind of in decline technically in that area, but let's not get too far down the line for high jump. Yeah. Yeah. Back to the awareness. So I, I keep hammering the idea of you don't turn a corner. You redirect the path of the center of mass. Well, we can't see the center of mass. So that's an obstacle for a lot of coaches. Um, you've got a young son you were telling about earlier. You take him to the pediatrician's office. Most doctor's offices these days have that wire game where the wires are all in different forms. Oh, yeah. And there are pegs that slide on it. I play with that so, when I go there. Okay. <laughs> now, now think of it in the case of high jump. The one that goes, the peg goes straight up and straight down is parabola. And where's the peak of the parabola? Where's the center of mass? That sliding peg. Or the one that's on level to the deck or the surface of the, of the, the toy that has curved path is the center of mass at a constant height, but reorienting mm-hmm. on the curved path. And you start to, you can't see the center of mass, but you can conceive of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I take that um, old school track or old school coaching. We used to talk about don't spill the teacup, meaning pelvic tilt. Well, I've kind of dropped that concept because it's a two-dimensional XY sort of yeah. image. I talk about a bowl of jello. I describe the pelvis as a bowl of jello. And you know how jello tends to jiggle? How calmly non-vibrational, how how steady state can I bring that bowl of jello to the moment? Because Mm. all that extemporaneous motion or or high, low, or left, right, or whatever the case may be, Mm. disadvantages that last application of force and its return. Today's podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is an online software for coaches and trainers, and I've continued to hear great things about the Team Builder platform. If you're looking for either an in-house training portal for your training groups or an online training hub, be sure to check out the Team Builder training software. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Plyomat. The Plyomat is a jump testing device that allows you to instantly receive ground contact times, jump heights, reactive strength measurements, and more in your training populations. It's easy to use, accurate, and affordable. And an awesome feature that I love about the Plyomat is it easily allows the connection of not just one mat, but you can string multiple mats together for use in things like multi-hurdle hops and bounding situations. I absolutely love the Plyomat, recommend it. And to check it out, you can head to plyomat.net. That's P-L-Y-O-M-A-T.net. Hmm. Um, Dave, you mentioned I, I like the I like that bowl of jello analogy. And I think that you, you mentioned that I like high jumping is just a reference point to everything else is not technically as good as it may have been decades ago. Even watching like Dick Fosbury and and it was just the beauty of that curve. He had like the engineering mind for it, but it was just so interesting too because like he, I don't want to get in the minutia of high jump, but like he didn't even use his arms much. It almost was so much about that curve that there was less confounding factors with just the beauty of how he did that curve linear run. Mm-hmm. And yet you see, <laughs> it's just, it. you see so many, like it's almost would be, um, it would be the exception to go to a track meet and see a high jumper who does a good angular run. Now, I also, I'm sure you would agree with this. There's some people who are just structurally built to run a curve far more than others. Like the, you know, someone who's very compressed, like think like a really strong, spent a lot of time in the way you're more blocky football player, probably not an excellent candidate for angular curve running in the high jump sense. But yet I think that there's, um, there's things that certainly could all teach us. But what I'm trying to say was the bowl of jello thing really got me thinking is so much of how things are cued and instructed. Now, this isn't high jump. This is literally everywhere is everything is 2D linear. Uh, One of the first examples of this that really got me thinking about that was uh, Adarian Barr was just talking about like wall drills, like wall drills for tracker everywhere. People love wall drills for sprinting because it's easy. It's very simple. Put it around on a wall. You're at this angle, march your feet, you know, very but at the same time which i i'm not saying that that's worthless i think there's certainly things that that can provide value for but if you do that enough that's all you can do and like i think um dan paffett said something i've heard him say like all cues have a shelf life i think there's things that have a shelf life and unless you at some point start to get to things that are more like that bowl of jello that incorporate all three planes of motion 
you will restrict your ability, your movement, your technicality. And I think just the high jump is just an example of how living in the box <laughs> can keep you in that box. Like it keeps you from really using your full ability. So um, that definitely got my mind going with that. I'm sure you would agree with me that there needs to be more effort put into like I love Nick Winkleman's analogies, like that bowl of jello analogy and finding ways for athletes to get sensory input and feedback on how their body is navigating three-dimensionality. Even for me, like even as I, I do spend more time sprinting than I hope I get a high jump pit in the near future. I mean, I'm 40 now, but I'll still, I'd still get out there and do it. But like I love feeling what my trunk is doing from a 3D perspective, like the, the diagonal pull on my obliques when I'm sprinting. Where is the force actually coming from? You know, where, where in the center? Like I ask myself these questions, maybe it's just because I'm so far down that, you know, rabbit hole further than the average athlete would certainly be. But I find it so interesting because so many of, I mean, I was just watching a video the other day of a sprint coach or a track coach who is very well respected. This was an old video, but he's instructing the arms. And everything is front to back, 2D, all the cues, instruction, even watching him and his motions, he's not twisting or turning his hand at all. And yet when you watch athletes run, there is angular action in the hands. It might not be a lot, but it's definitely happening. And so it's like, unless at some point that frame of mind at least can go into that shelf life for the 2D can expire and athletes are ready for more of a three-dimensional emphasis, I just think we're holding people back. Um, but, so. but here's the trail of tears. You're uh, a high school senior. Let me use an analogy here uh, or a metaphor. Uh, you're a high school senior, and we're going to refer to you as the car that your parents gave you for graduating high school. And you take that car and you send it to XYZ University. Well, the coach at that school is the auto technician. And the car needs a front end alignment. Great car needs a front end alignment okay but if the practitioner can't do front end alignments what you see happening when you're talking about the last 20 years and where decline in technique has, has fallen what i'm seeing more often than not is a coach getting beyond or out over their skis or whatever the cute term is today as far as not having the next cue or the next concept outside of two dimensions if you can't fix the front end alignment, what's the next best thing? Well, let's pull out that V6 engine, drop a V8 in that baby. That'll mm -hmm. go faster, yeah. <laughs> right? But the problem is when you add more motor, it accentuates the problems that needed fixing. But if you don't have that ability in your bag of tricks, and so, I mean, that's where we're blowing people up. I, mm -hmm. I, uh, I have to be careful. I don't want to use any individual names, but I was filming a sporting event from a right angle and the athlete goes running by and i was shocked at what i saw because this is an elite athlete and I, I couldn't believe it was really concerning to me i got up and i ran to the opposite direction so i could film the athlete running at me and it pointed out what i assumed i saw from the 90 degree angle but the coaching staff and the advisors to the athlete were just going along like there was nothing, mm -hmm. nothing to see here. And again, you put that person in the weight room, you have them run sprints, they get stronger and faster, pushing a bad position. So I did share with a couple people in confidence and I said, this person's going to blow up within a year. And sure enough, they did. The injury came and it came in the similar application to what I'm talking about. But that goes to where if you can't see in the mind's eye what's taking place three-dimensionally, the first solution is you've got to acknowledge that you lack that critical skill. Then the question is, how do you address it? Now, you need to probably lean more on video so you can sit mm -hmm. down and look at it. You also need to change your perspective when you watch athletes. For instance, I work with our top high jump coaches, and invariably our high jump coaches will watch the event from the extended uh, plane of the bar or the long axis of the bar extended. They're looking at the athlete from a right angle. When you go to an Olympics or World Championships, where do they seat you? Directly behind the athlete. So all year long, you've been coaching them, looking at them from a right mm. angle, and now yeah. you're sitting behind them. Are you equipped to deal with the, what they're doing in the moment from that new perspective you never really watched them from? You know, so it's, it's those sorts of things. How do you, you know, you've got certain things, you know, whether it's a basketball court mm -hmm. or a soccer field or a football stadium or a track or whatever. you. 
typically will have lines of some sort, and they're pretty much straight lines. That gives you a benchmark. So the straight lines on the surface, the verticals of a goalpost or a high jump crossbar standard or whatever, it gives you some sort of ability to triangulate. So now where's that center of mass that you can't see? Let's just assume, you know, you hand the kid an M&M, he swallows it in the middle of his stomach. There's that center of mass. How is that progressing through the run, through the whatever the uh, the technical application is at the moment? And how do you now instruct to get the optimal result you're looking for? And again, it, it's really incumbent on the coach to accept that they can't see what they can't see, but they have to come up with some sort of accommodation, yeah. modification, acknowledging is the first step. And now let's build in some supports that uh, that will help uh, you know get the best possible result. I agree. I, I I like what you mentioned too. It's like with all the direction advances that speed and power, or I should say, power and strength has gone through. Like I think Werner Gunther until modern day, and I think probably most of it happened through the eighties. And if you look at the bell curve of how fast and powerful, like a lot of that power training was, a lot of it happened in the eighties and nineties. We're still in a good place with it, but it is a thing where you can replace or supplant technical gains with just more power and you will probably see some sort of you know needle move it depends you know i think high jump you might not but there's other events you could or or practices you know standing vertical especially i mean you're in the weight room hey your standing vert went up so awesome you know but at some point you will hit a technical ceiling i i really like what you mentioned too i mentioned this in my acceleration course is if you watch people coaching like the combine 40 so often you see they're parked out 90 degrees basically to the first step 2D. And, but at the same time, like, and, and this was just discussed on um, a podcast I did with Mike Sullivan and uh, Hunter Eisenhower. Mike was mentioning he was reading a 1080 readout on the guy's sprint and the sprint curve. And it wasn't something that he could figure out what was going on from the side view. He had to go to the rear view to see what was happening from that more rotational standpoint in the sprint. And, and it's, and that's even still, I mean, you could even still, still say that's a, a 90 degree or 180 degree angle, but it still like shows very strongly that you can't just stand at the same place every single time <laughs> to understand the event. And so I, that was a really good podcast I did with those guys and a really cool perspective there. But I, I think a lot about that is we get so conditioned to whatever we're coaching, coaching it the exact same way. We have like our three cues, our three drills, we got our spot. And I mean, if nothing else, just stand in a different spot for a while. You know? I mean, let alone, you didn't have to know the whole angular thing right away. So I think that's a really good point that, that you know, just, just coaching from different positions, gaining different perspectives, different planes of motion and what's happening there. Well, watch, watch an athlete uh, from a standing start. Um, it's really pronounced coming out of blocks uh, or the combine 40 or whatever the case may be. Watch each footfall for the first five or so steps. And you, what you typically see is a kind of a Christmas tree effect where the first foot forward is hip width plus, and the second foot is slightly mm -hmm. tighter. Yeah. And eventually they fall into heel toe relationship, but they start wider. Yeah. You get that lateral sort of, and eventually as they accelerate, because the body starts to rise over the top of the ground contacts, but looking from the side, in a 2d perspective they're mm -hmm. all pointing yep. down the road you don't pick up on that you don't notice that similar to like um you'll see coaches the next uh you know it's like a 12-step program mm -hmm. the, the coaches were are, are going to now run out and look at their athletes running at, at them for the first time they're going to notice that there's a foot splay and the foot is turned outward and they're going to immediately try to get that yeah. foot to be in line with the body i don't really care so much about that because it's the big toe the heel and the big toe that are in alignment and the fact that the other four toes are slightly rotated outward from that point that's not a problem for me but you might see that you know people overreact to that the one case it is though however and it's a dead giveaway is you watch like a a, a longer run like a hundred meter plus uh track and field it's usually in the 400 whereas the abductor adductor partners start to fail or go lactic or whatever you want to call it you'll see that that foot will start to rotate out because the musculature at the hip isn't there to keep it in the ideal alignment. So now, do you need to train the weight room for that? Do you need to build up some you know, reserves so that you don't go into that posture? Or is that at the end of a race where you can economize the groundings 
therefore going for the lower lapse time without any, you know, energy systems or lactate testing or whatever. It's just the nature of that foot rotating beyond. Same way they said the foot, the ankle has about 10 degrees range of motion. After that first 10 degrees, the entire leg starts mm-hmm. to rotate. Well, if the muscles of the hip aren't stabilizing, that foot starts to fade outward. Well, you know, in a, in a team sport application or, you know, on turf or whatever, you'll get injury patterns from that. But if it's an elapsed time issue, like the track and field, you know, it's a less efficient grounding. You're not going to get where you want to as fast as you can. But here's another a descriptor for you. The inside lane of a 200 meter track, lane one, measured in, I forget whether it's eight or 12 inches in from the lane line, all the way around a curve gives you a radius of a little over 17 meters. Okay. The high jumpers we've been talking about, you know, whether it's a, we were talking about Matt Hemingway or Barsham or whoever the case may be, they're running approaches where the radius usually is anywhere from 14 to 15 meters. So not a lot different than that 17 meter radius on a track. Okay. I told you moments ago that for a high jumper to go 240, they really need to go in about eight meters a second. Well, if you multiply eight meters a second out, that's a 12.500 meters gets out to a 140, 800 meters. Mm-hmm. 800 meter runners run in indoor tracks, don't they? Yeah. Okay. 800 meter runners, the the best world in the world indoors this year in an Olympic year are going to be running 142, maybe 141 high down near 140 on a 17 meter plus radial curve each lap of that 200 meter track. How many of those guys do you see pivot and twist and torque and throw their arm across their chest Mm -hmm. and do all these sorts of insane sort of mechanical gestures to navigate that 17 meter curve. Whereas when you watch the high jumpers running a 15 meter curve, you've got hops and starts and stops and and pivot and cranks and turns. The efficiency is, is the key. And why did high jump become inefficient? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of cases we're talking about free play and kids not learning change of direction without coach driven instruction you know, running out and playing kick the can, running out and playing dodgeball or, you know, capture the flag or whatever, that stop and go, change of direction, force application, return, grounding the foot. It's different when you do it in the driveway versus when you do yes. it in the sand and and having that, that, you know, athletic resume built up. Well, we bring these kids through a system where they don't get those skills, they don't learn those things. And then using that auto repair analogy, we drop a bigger engine in. Yeah. And it's coached in 2D. You know, it's like, and that's where this whole conversation too, it's funny because I think on the offset, you could look at this as a very complex conversation that takes like, you know, this, you know, we got to get them through the research and put our PhD hats on and go to physics class. And yeah, you could, but I think much more simply is just physical education. And it is funny how much more I look at, even like what you mentioned, just with like the angular and the free play. If I, I would really be cool to see a mapping of, hey, here's a game of flag football, here's a game of basketball, and watch like the arcs that are run and the nature of those arcs that are run. Like I was talking about playing basketball, you know, of the many reasons you feel great playing basketball after, ready, fully activated. And I'm not even saying too like, oh, well, it primes you to run a curve. Well, okay, sure. But I'm just saying like even the muscular activations that come with some of these things, like a tight torqued curve, like that's awesome. Or even... um. I remember Gavin McMillan, I wrote this down like 20 minutes ago, probably. Uh, Gavin McMillan runs Sports Science Lab, and he was on this podcast a while ago, and he was talking about when he was younger, one of the things he did growing up that he felt gave him like a cheat advantage was actually figure skating. He mentioned figure skating. Like, he's like, oh, I did that. I was like a cheat code after that. And I'm like, well, what's figure skating? It's angular, like ex- everything you were saying. It's starting with a, a, a lesser angle, and it's tightening and ratcheting that up and doing that in all these tricks and different things. And he said he had to skate in like a pistol squat across the ice, <laughs> you know, but there's, but there's your example. Where, exactly. Where we've got athletes that are specializing at age five and they don't get the broad based athletic experience. They tunnel into soccer, football, baseball, every spring, the NBA has its draft mm-hmm. and every major city in the United States drafts the player. And those cities that have major league baseball teams, will invite the NBA draft number one pick for their team to come throw out the first pitch. I have seen some of the ugliest baseball throws, and you could imagine 
John Wall throws one, <laughs> 60 feet, six inches of plate. No, he's down at about 40 feet, balls in the ground. These are guys that have performed in front of 20,000 people. They're phenomenal on a basketball court, but they don't have the skill set to throw a ball from the mound to first base. And I've heard all pe- sorts of people come to me and they say, oh, well, and they give me all these, these, you know, outs for these athletes. Well, this is why, this is why. I said, you know what? After 9-11, George Bush went out on the freaking mound and threw a strike. I rest my case. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it is it is interesting. I was gonna say, um, you know, you got me thinking too with like like running curves, running angles, and what we see in sport. And then, of course, we all know that you know every high school sport now, instead of doing track or something else, you do the club version of your sport. And I would, you know, I would love to see, uh, you know, I we all certainly hear the stories of good football players who are good hundred meter sprinters, maybe a good hurdler here and there. Um, I remember back in the day, and I would love to see some sort of analysis with this, but there was a, when I was growing up in Milwaukee, there was a good player on the Wisconsin football team who was a wide receiver, who was also like a seven, three or a two twenty two high jumper, two twenty five yep. high jumper, Bobby Myers, I think it was his name. And yep. I guess I think about well, what are the skills needed to work in that capacity? Well, it is running curves and angles. And I, you know, I, 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 I didn't actually play football, so I can't speak to this, but you would think that those arcs that are run on the field are not pure you know especially once the ball starts coming at you then that arc is going to change it's going to change based off a variety of factors so it would make sense that the ability to operate with good angles uh on the field of play is going to also be and it's something that you if you're exposed to it early enough in all sorts of different ways shapes and forms and even the other day we had a bunch of kids in the neighborhood we were just playing my house is on a little hill like a little i don't know eight ten degree hill we were playing like we, we put a put a flag uh, like a flag football on a kid and they just chased each other around the yard trying to get it you know and you think about that plus a little angle too that automatically train train some of these things um mm-hmm. and, and the value of playing on like not perfect fields <laughs> like things that are hey here's a perfectly flat manicured field turf field for you to always play on you know and it's like thinking about where these things can be trained automatically through uh, general physical development, free play education, where and then versus this like, you know, manufactured athlete that comes up playing less total sports. Everything is coached up more so in 2D rather than, you know, those types of things. And um, so, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, just in closing, um, I was going to say, yeah, with the, the Polish boxes and the ankles. And even mm-hmm. yeah, the curvilinear run, I think there's so much strength, special strength that that even exists within those. I know people like Kaldiz have talked about that, like just running a curve run, the one le- each leg having a different job. There's a lot of foot and ankle strength being built. Would you say that an an angular run for people who are looking at, okay, like maybe I already do curvilinear runs, you know, I, I'm doing some ankle work, maybe some multilateral ankle work, um, in 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 general physical training, it's interesting to think. I feel like a um, a true curvilinear run that increases in in force as you go. To me, it seems like there's almost more skill to that in some sense than it is pure physical. If you're already doing curvilinear stuff, it's almost like that's where the thing, that's where the skill comes in. And not that there aren't some physical, because again, it's it's kind of cool because I think so often we only think about training as okay, more weight on the bar, um, maybe even the velocity of the bar went up or whatever. You know, that's cool, but. There's also like, hey, if you want to train 3D, here's some ways to do it. You can run curvilinear. Here's an option. That's an awesome option. But hey, if you want to also have it where it's like, I almost think of it like accommodating resistance, like the bars or the Nautilus equipment, right? That as you go, it gets harder. Well, hey, mm-hmm. an angular run is accommodating resistance to this already cool thing. Curvilinear running already cool. Hey, let's make it even harder by making that hook even, you know, it's like sinister. It's like, hey, let's make that hook even harder at the end and you got to stay on it. You know, it's, so now it's skill and strength and power and ankle strength. And I think that's really cool. So it's kind of like, this is a lot theoretical, right? Because this isn't a conversation like, hey, check out this training group and outside of track high jump, right? Like for the people that might work like that. But I do think it would be a really cool team sport training application. You know, if you think, and again, I, I think that it can e- be easy to be counterculture and a little, you know, you could say, care quotes, weird if everything is spirals and conch shells and <laughs> you're getting, you're getting a little bit out there, you know, but I think to have that, like I have these different shapes written down, I have the 90, I have the radial and I have a, a, a shell curve. Like you had those three options, they each have their own benefit. So let's use everything we have. You know, I think that could be a place to start for a lot of people. Well, again, I, a couple things. I'll re- one is a repeat, but the idea of a mastery approach that 
until they can demonstrate it repetitively, you can't amplify or add more load or or make it more challenging. And we're also discounting the fact that you can be a practice All-American and not be able to replicate it competition. So that rush to tighten, that rush to put more weight mm-hmm. on the bar, yeah. that idea that more is better. Well, more isn't better, better is better. That's my, not my quote, but until you accept that dogma, you, you're going to be challenged. Um, another thing we didn't talk about as far as strength and curve relationship is the, the value of using isometrics. Um, mm-hmm. There's a great video I send to coaches, um, the challenge in initiating the curve. Okay. So I'm glad I reminded myself or it popped back to my head because the curve rises or falls on the initiation of the curve. You can have the best intentions, the best instructions. You can paint lines. You can watch video. You can do whatever you want. If you don't enter the curve effectively, you can't regain that moment in time. You can't repair the damage that's done. Hmm. So the initiation of the curve, all right, you can't effectively start a curve on the inside leg to the direction you're going. It has to be the outside leg. Again, that relationship to the center of mass and redirecting the center of mass. If you don't do that, you're rotating in the vertical plane. So uh, I think I sent you a, a note, the idea of the concept of the difference between rotation versus revolution. Mm. So in that lecture in Denver last year I gave, I'm talking about the idea that you don't get revolution from a rotation technique. So if you're walking down the hallway at high school, or if you're walking down the hallway, suite of coaches offices or whatever, and somebody off to your left in an, uh, in an office yells out to the hallway to you saying, Hey, Joel, and you turn your head, you haven't redirected your center of mass. You just rotated your head, mm-hmm. right? Your momentum is still straight ahead. Okay. You're walking down the hallway, heel toe relationships. Somebody yells out, Hey, Joel, you throw your arm across your chest, your momentum is still straight ahead. You haven't redirected center mass. Now, here's the real key. Walking down the hallway, you got a little momentum going. Somebody off on a right angle yells, hey, Joel, your next step, you pick up that foot and you rotate the foot toward the audio. Turning the foot doesn't redirect the center of mass. It generates torque. Mm. You might take a nosedive, but you haven't reoriented your body nor have you redirected your center of mass. So the effective methodology to initiate a curve is outside leg, separation from the center of mass, lateral pressure in the form of friction force, and then the reaction is the center of mass is redirected. You don't lean to create lean. You don't turn to redirect the center of mass. So when you watch athletes, invariably this is where they fall down. And if it's not somebody that's, you know, aware of biomechanics or physics, they'll use cues of turning or the word turn, but that's not really what they're looking for. It's not going to get them what they need. Hmm. So again, if you turn that inside foot or you turn your head or you turn your shoulder axis, you haven't redirected center of mass, but because you have prior momentum, you're still cranking straight ahead. Now you have one less step. Now, are you going to do it now, or are we going to miss it? If you missed it on the outside foot that grounded, you didn't redirect center of mass. Now, it's the inside foot, which I just told you, is less effective in redirecting center of mass counter to the previous direction. So, now we've lost two steps. Now, we're down to that outside foot again. Now, we can finally start redirecting center of mass, but how many steps have we got left to our target, whether it's a layup or a high jump or whatever the case may be? So, it's really critical that the initiation of the curve is done correctly. Mm. And now that adds into, we talked about how many steps in a curve. Five steps in a high jump curve, the last right would be outward, creating inward lean, and then you have the five steps to the plant. It doesn't work on one less step or two less steps. The opposite is actually true. Uh, A friend of mine is coaching one of our great high jumpers currently. He actually has them on a six step. You can always add steps because it breaks that that constellation of, of view of a curve into smaller pieces, which allows you to gradiate or Fibonacci the curve. Mm-hmm. If you go with less steps, they're more abrupt redirection. Yeah, you don't get curvature. So now it becomes a subjective. Uh, I use the term smooth. Smooth is a subjective term. It looks smooth. 
But you know, if you watch Barsham when he's healthy, not injured, it's a very smooth run to the plant. Athletes that have fluidity of motion, well, that fluidity of motion is underpinned by the nature of how they're contacting the ground, nature of how they're redirecting their path. And the less effective they are at that, the more it's going to be looking rough, choppy, pivoting up and down, the more you're cavitating that bowl of jello that I said represents the center of mass. Yeah. I think that for people, you know, uh, this is something that, (laughs) you know, this is an audio show. It would be, I feel like to really get into this and understand it well, you know, you need visual. Yeah. Yeah. We need a video for that. You know, like I, I, one thing that I think, I guess this, my macro thinking brain though, would think like, well, okay. So how do we look at like, you know, be it track, be it high jump, be it, Hey, athletes are doing curve linear running. I think do yes, like looking at the smoothness, is it choppy? Can they make this look smooth? I even think too, like, well, you mentioned it's important how you enter the curve. Part of me thinks about, well, what is smooth? Smooth is there is a a redirection of your center of mass, so that orange that sits below your belly button or behind your belly button or whatever. And that moves laterally. And now you have to self-organize smoothly to adapt to that. Again, within the vector. You initiate ground contact and you apply force and then midpoint of the vector is where you have to realign the torso prior to ground release on the other side so it's this constant readjustment to the new path yeah it's it's a it's like it's almost like uh you know i think you could get into even like skill development motor learning a lot of motor learning stuff even gets into like almost philosophical life itself like ever changing like it's never a hundred percent constant there's always something that's it's like a repetition without repetition in a curve like but um i was almost thinking too what you would be kind of fun to do this is again more macro thought but like what if you had a coach or a player stand with a big physio ball right at the initiation of the curve you just kind of like you know shove the person right give them a bump into it like where they had to reorganize in the air and they couldn't like you know what i'm saying like here's the solution the same way i was talking about walking down the hall and you've got momentum and turning won't get you to redirect the center of mass imagine walking down that same hallway but there's no doors on your left side as you're walking down Mm -hmm. and your shoulder is roughly six inches to 12 inches away from the wall so you're walking along and then you put down that right foot that outside foot you apply lateral pressure and you fall inward to that shoulder contacting the wall get the sense of that repetition Mm of lateral pressure friction force results in inward lean and then you've got that kickstand effect with the wall supporting you yeah it's a far more alive occurrence than i think that again that's right i just keep coming back maybe it's just the tyler yearby episode with aliveness but i just think about like there is so much more skill in some of these things than i think we give it credit for like even watching like a darian bars talked about like a javelin throw and you watch like like Vetter and like how do you <laughs> fly onto this long elongated straight leg in front of you, catch yourself, and time up the throw over the top of that? Like that is I, I think we to 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 help our brains not explode sometimes, we try we we have to live in a little bit more safe boxes. You know, I, I think when looking at an athlete like that, I and there's only so much of that you can honestly even coach. Like there is just so they, the, a lot of that, that it's almost like you're flying through space and the body and brain have to take up the rest and figure it out. You know what I'm saying? Like that, this. That's the key. It depends on the, on the kid you've got. It depends yeah. on the animal you're working with. When they're a, a gifted, natural, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. call them the one, the one percenters. The one percenters can get away with flawed methodology because they're just so gifted. And so, so when I speak to coaches and coaching groups or individuals, I talk to them about the other 99% because that's who most of us are getting to coach. How do we elevate the 99% closer to or to be competitive with the 1%? And as you get further away from the top 1% gifted individuals, the more that maximizing and economizing of technique comes into play. Yeah. Um, Anything else before we get out of here today? uh, Is there any closing thoughts that uh, Dave, you might have Uh, anything we've covered? Anything else you want to mention before we uh, close down for the show today? Yeah, um, I guess just in general, um, I think that that there's a a flavor of the month sort of phenomena where Marcos captures the hot button issue and everybody's talking about it. It's really cool. Markerless. Can you just explain it? I know you mentioned the beginning, but sure. Sure. Um, 
biomechanics, when you go into a, a biomechanist lab, they will put reflectors or dots. Mm -hmm. um, you see that kind of stick figure image going through a motion. Um, it's a classic when they make like uh, video games for the NBA. They'll take athletes and they'll put reflectors on the hip joints, the shoulder joints, the knee joints, the ankle joints, the elbow joints. And then that allows them to create the image based on real live mechanics. So by doing that, you can, you can gauge angles and elapsed time and heights and lowerings and, and all sorts of key performance indicators from that. Well, what's happening now is it used to be back when I got into sport, um, prior to about 2012, it used to be that you had to use high speed film. You had to go back to a lab and process the film, then go through this whole digitizing process. And it, it took yeah. months and months and months yeah. to get feedback. That was my grad school thesis, by the way. <laughs> marker marker well, capture. <laughs> it took forever. Dr. DePena. Yeah. yeah. So that evolved. And Dr. Becker, who worked with me, a uh, good friend of mine, um, I was very fortunate for about four years that he and I were filming around the country. And because of the nature of, of digital quality and, and computer capabilities we we're able to turn around evaluations in a much quicker time frame but what that meant was by using cameras you had to have some sort of device that you calibrated the cameras to to allow you to digitize in mm -hmm. place of reflectors because an athlete at a meet isn't wearing reflectors on their body for the analysis to take place from so that was the the the, the replacement now with the quality of of iphones mm -hmm. and and Samsungs and Google phones or whatever, the processing capability of those phones and these platforms that have come out that actually have supercomputer banks and access for time. I've heard numbers as high as $10,000 a month to get computer time on these. There you, and with the partnership of AI, they're able to take video from an iPhone, process it and turn it around in hours and give you all kinds of information. So the sprint groups right now are heavy into it. So Altus and Jonas, people we know and talk to, um, Ken Clark, um, those guys are all affiliated with one or more different platforms. But again, it's in a linear application to the sprint. The only rotational act, uh, evaluations that are occurring currently are in place. So a pitcher's wind up mm. or golf swing where yeah. they're fixed position. When you're running non-linear, and there's any kind of rotational uh, taking place, MarkerList hasn't caught up to that moment in time. So myself and Carl Valley, a guy you probably know, yeah. he and I are working with a platform. We're trying to get to where MarkerList Capture can analyze non-linear running. Yeah. That goes back to the earlier discussion we had in the conversation where high jump is kind of the bridge in my mind between radial and freeform curvilinear, where it's not radial, but it's a repeat pattern that they start at the same place and at the same place. And the curvature between the two is pretty consistent with slight variation. So it's kind of a bridge to freeform curvilinear running. But what's going to, what the challenge and the reason I'm bringing this up is it's going to be a placebo for a lot of people because it's going to kick you back all this information. But in reality, if you don't understand science, physics, geometry, whatever the application is, and something tells you that the, angle at the elbow was three degrees different in repeat number one versus repeat number two well what does that mean what do you do with that how do you adjust or, or, or react to that information so it's information and here's the challenge to people that are listening i'm predicting i'm not certain but i'm pretty sure that the summer olympics in paris are going to have graphics and details that are going to blow mm -hmm. everybody's mind including the talent on air mm. because people are going to be announcing who can't process yes. that level of information and turn it around coherently, intelligently to a live audience. And that's where technology is racing past individuals' ability to process and then effectively apply that information. So markerless capture and that value, you know, mom and dad are going to run out and put the app on their phone and film Junior or, or Janie or Mary. Okay, but what have we got? Where do we go with that? You know what I mean? And so it behooves these athletes to, to do what they do. Excuse me, I don't want to say athletes. It behooves us as coaches mm -hmm. to stay current, to stay ahead, to be versed in three-dimensional concepts, to be versed in biomechanics, to be versed in, here's the last thought I'll leave with you. 
any athletic performance has an optimal method. Very few athletes perform optimally all the time. That's okay. That's human nature. We're flawed beings. But as a coach, it's okay to instruct non-optimally as long as that sources from or begins from a full comprehension of what is optimal. Then you adapt it. Again, tall, short, fat, thin. Athletic performance isn't one size fits all. The problem is when a coach gets information from a third party like Marcellus Capture or a coach watches uh, the national champion perform an event and then just tries to replicate the exact same thing in their situation Mm -hmm. without true comprehension. Awareness and comprehension are two different things. So what we get more often is coaches coaching anecdotally rather from a sound sound awareness or knowledge. So it's important that we accept and understand the optimal, and then I'll leave it with the concept of in practice and application, it becomes the practical. But it's got to start from optimal and work its way backwards, not you know throwing darts at a board hoping some sticks. Yeah. It's, it is interesting, all the data that we have at our fingertips now with the advance of technology, but I'm excited for when, yeah, that, that 3D piece and measuring that comes through just because it is so, it's not easy to do, you know, like, and it'll be cool once that does happen. So, it sounds like a cool project you're working on. Um, thanks for your time, Dave, today. It was really cool. I, I really, you know, I got three new drawings that I'm going to ponder here Let's <laughs> watch it looking next to each other, uh, but I appreciate talking to you, man, uh, and thanks for being on the show. All right. Anytime thanks for tuning in to another episode i appreciate you being here and i'll see you next week